Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Almost Famous, the podcast where I explore the subject of fame by talking to people who've experienced it themselves and ask them how it has affected their own journey as well as the lives of those around them. Full circle time on today's episode as I turn the tables on comedian and author David Baddiel, who interviewed me about my own experiences of growing up around fame in the final episode of Series 1. At the beginning of that show, David chastised me about not getting his intro quite right, so let's see if I can do a better job this time. David was a member of the Cambridge Footlights before finding fame after university in the Mary Whitehouse experience on the BBC. David and Rob Newman then became the first stand-up comedians to sell out Wembley Arena. David went on to co-create Fancy Football and Baddiel and Skinner Unplanned with Frank Skinner and also topped the UK singles charts four times with Free Lions, which is the only song ever to do that. David has written four novels and six children's books too. He also created BBC Radio 4 com- comedy panel shows Heresy and Don't Make Me Laugh and has recently made a return to the stage with stand-up shows including the critically acclaimed Fame Not The Musical, My Family Not The Sitcom and his upcoming tour, if coronavirus ever allows, called Trolls, not the dolls. Hello, David. How did I do this time? Uh, you did very well. You didn't make any mistakes. Uh, obviously, you left out a few things, but I think <laughs> that's okay because you can't cover uh, everything in the intro. And if you did, it would make for a very interesting show. But I think it illustrates something about fame, which I possibly uh, think is important to begin with. Now, I can't. I think the, the mistake you made on the on series one was, uh, yeah, was to say that uh, Three Lions had topped the charts three times or not four times, and uh, it is four times, and that's that's a sort of record or something. I think Live Aid, uh, Do They Know It's Christmas, has topped it four times, but that's not the same artists. That's different artists every time. And the reason, I'm, say- the reason I'm saying all this bollocks uh, is not just to self-aggrandise for that record, but because it's a key thing about fame that I explored in my show Fame Not The Musical, which is... There's no really other sphere of life where people get you wrong, is there? I mean, people kind of get might get you wrong in a small interpersonal way, but facts about you, most of the time, out of the sphere of fame, they're kind of, you know, probably about right, or if they're not right, you just say, no, actually, you know, my mum was French, not German. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or, or nobody gives a shit. Or nobody gives a shit. It's not something where mistakes that are made about you that, you know, that are could be quite big mistakes right yeah uh, but in fame it happens all the time i mean that show fame not the musical was about essentially there being a version of me out there that is not me and that is so much not me that i related at least four stories in which i was actually literally mistaken for someone else who yeah. people th- think is me at one point i nearly had to sue the times uh, because they printed a story saying that i created a fracas at a Peter Gabriel gig um, and I had to be restrained and I tried to beat up a woman and (laughs) I was removed by security and what was really really weird is I had gone to that gig on another night uh, and I thought did I black out what the fuck what happened and then after much um, digging I eventually found out from Peter Gabriel that the person (laughs) concerned was Ian Brodie Right? And, and it was just a case of mistaken identity. And Ian Brody does look like me and, of course, is associated with me. But it, it's one of... And I don't want to tell them all on this podcast because I have told them on various other shows and in that show. But that's part and parcel of being famous is a lot of people, particularly if you have a face like mine, which is quite a sort of 
the coordinates of my face are copied in quite a few other people (laughs) is people literally mistake you for someone else and get you completely wrong. And um, I quoted in that show, um, I can't remember her name now, but the woman who wrote Fear of Flying, uh, I'll remember it possibly throughout at some point this podcast, but whatever her name was, she said this thing. She said, fame, the more famous you are, the more people will get you wrong. And I think that that's very true about fame. So what I'm saying anyway is the reason that I'm someone, as you know, who's a bit obsessive about truth and about little truth details. And we can probably talk about that a little bit as we... Yeah, pathologically honest, I think, is a term I've heard used now. Yeah, well, that's sort of how I describe myself. And and the reason that I... You have to be a bit careful with even that because sometimes shit people, (laughs) when when they do those Q&As and they come to like, you know, What's your what's your flaw? What's your most irritating thing? They often say, "Oh, I think I'm just too honest." You know, mm. if anything, it's because I'm I, I'm too much of a perfectionist or some shit like that because they don't want to say anything actually bad about themselves. But it is true that I've got a sort of obsessive and slightly wearying need to be as truthful as possible, and it's even it infects at times my comedy. Like I remember during that show, that fame show, I was telling a story about Ezra, my son. Uh, a funny story about Ezra, and over the time that I told the, that I did that show, he became nine, right? But the thing happened when he was eight, and because I'm nuts, I would tell that story later on and say Ezra, he was eight. Well, he's nine now, but he was eight then, and it just gets in the way of the joke. It's completely unnecessary. But I could not physically say my eight-year-old son Ezra, knowing he was nine. Right. And so I am, I've got a sort of on the spectrum need to tell the truth, which works very weirdly with being famous, because being famous sort of always means that the truth about you goes into a weird sort of social mill that everyone owns, and you can't control. Yeah. And just with you mentioning that story or the various stories where people have written uh, articles wrongly about you, for, for those of us who aren't famous and will never experience that it's worth asking I think how does it actually feel when you read something or hear something that is really wrong and potentially hurtful as well what, what's the actual feeling well that was quite a good example because I'm literally at my breakfast table I get the times <laughs> it's the posh newspaper that I get to make myself feel grown up and they have like a diary section you often this is where you often see stories about yourselves because the diary sections of newspapers, uh, which still completely exist, uh, are essentially gossip areas. And a few times I've been in diary sections and I thought, oh, this is some weird story about me that's not true or it's a misquote or I've been quoted saying something. But they're, they're often designed diary entries, and this is an issue with fame as well, to slightly be snarky about the famous. Yeah. Uh, and actually... I sometimes meet diarists and I will say to them straight away, well, your job is to be snarky. And they'll say, oh, no, no, I know that. I know that. That's the brief, but I'm not like that or whatever. So as soon as I saw a picture of me in a diary section in the Times, I thought, oh, God, this will be something horrible. And then I think there was a picture of Peter Gabriel as well, who I, you know, am a big fan of, but also do vaguely know. And I thought, oh, you know, this is going to be bad because it's going to, suggest that I did something bad to Peter, which it does. It suggests that I started a fight at his gig. That's how bad the music was. Yeah. And also that I tried to hit a woman. I mean, horrible stuff. You know, I I mean, I could definitely have sued uh, the Times for it. And it felt really horrible. Why didn't you? Sorry. Well, what happened was I... Well, just in terms of answer your question, it feels very dislocating and disorientating. Um especially if you are someone, as I say, who has a very strong sense of themselves, (laughs) which for better or worse, I do. I have a very strong sense of myself. That's quite unusual for a famous person, I think. Uh, I think a lot of famous people kind of don't know who they are and find who they are or try and find who they are through fame, and then it can quite often go wrong. But actually, I've got a sort of rock-solid, wearily me sense of me. And so therefore, if I see something and think that, I'm really sure that wasn't me. It feels very disorientating indeed, particularly because I did call the Times uh, or through Avalon, my agency, you know, spoke to someone at the Times. I think I ended up speaking to the person who'd written the actual piece. And he started saying, no, it definitely was you. It was you, you know. I mean, 
it reminds me of Frank telling me a story that I think it was Paul Jones. No, it's Paul Nicholas, right? Who was an actor when yeah, I was so a I remember kid. Paul yeah, he probably he, just good friends. He probably knew your mum, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not suggesting anything. I just say he probably knew your mum. <laughs> For um, once, yeah. And Paul Nicholas, someone once came up to him and said, "Oh, I really love your version of the Mighty Quinn, which is a song by the Man from Man Earth Band, the lead singer of which was a singer called Paul Jones." And he said to this person, "No, I, I think you're, you know, that's Paul Jones." And that, and the the woman who'd come up to him said, "No, no, no." I, th- I think you'll find it was you. And, <laughs> and, and when people are convinced that it was someone famous and they, they've seen that, they're, they're very hard to change their minds. So this person at the Times kind of said, no, no, we've got witnesses, which is terrifying because maybe they did. Maybe they did have witnesses, you know. And I am probably more famous than Ian Brody, right? So mm-hmm. there's probably a sense in which if you see uh, a bloke like Ian Brody doing something like that, and you think, who is that? And you sort of associate it with three liars. You know what I mean? I can see how it becomes me. Of course, you know? yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I spent a lot of time telling this bloke it wasn't me, but I couldn't get anywhere with it because he just said, no, we've got witnesses. And he just thought oh, clearly that I was lying. And then yeah. eventually, I, you know, I got the information from Peter. And at that point, they did back down. But then they printed a kind of slightly jokey, slightly taking the piss out of me, story the next day or two days later whatever it was saying you know a case of mistaken identity and made fun of you know essentially the fact that I was even bothered about it and it was you know the the attitude of the press then and maybe still now but it's slightly changed because of the internet and you know one thing to answer your question about what's it like seeing stuff written about you that is different now because then it was horrible but it was fairly I guess occasional now you see it every day. You see every day, every minute you can see, if you go looking for it, horrible stuff written about you and lies written about you. Um, but I think the attitude of the press then was it's kind of vulgar to complain. It's kind of vulgar for a famous person to complain about stuff written about them in the press, even if it isn't true. And and I always thought, fuck off to that. I mean, it's very, it is very hard. That's one of the things is... You know, with all the stuff about pre- about control of the press and you know uh, and Leveson Inquiry or whatever, the press are always saying, "No, no, we have libel laws in this country, and so why do we need control of the press?" And I always say, "Well, I've tried to sue the press, and they make it really difficult, and they make you feel a cunt for doing yeah. it, and like, why are you bothered? It's you know, no one cares, and you, you you're like a big pompous fool for doing this." Mm. So, um, but yeah. in that example, but in that example, they've accused you of potentially trying to beat up a woman yeah i mean it's definitely libelous so what so in terms of making it difficult what does that mean how do they make it difficult or or what stopped you from doing it money no not money i mean i would have been able to afford it Uh, they printed an apology very quickly i i was able to use it in fame not the musical and it got big laughs and possibly suing them would have made that a bit difficult uh to get comedy out of it uh, I had a I had a, I had a serious, more serious thing, I guess, in a way, that happened when I was younger. When I was just really starting out, um, I had I was interviewed by a magazine called Smash Hits, which your mum was almost definitely in. Um, no, Smash Hits. I think it was too late for my mum. Oh, really? Smash Hits. I remember eighties and nineties pop stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I was interviewed when I was a rock and roll comedian in Smash Hits, and they, in a very Smash Hits way, for anyone listening who's young, it was a kind of teenage magazine. Uh, and mainly read probably by, you know, teenage girls, there was a kind of, they had this kind of, they interviewed us and me and Rob Newman, and then they had a kind of semi-serious bit where we had to answer these sort of semi-serious questions about what we would do in certain situations. And one of the questions was what we would do if our girlfriends uh, wanted to have an abortion. That was a question in Smash Bloody It. Bloody hell. I know. So I, so I said, which I would stand by now, even though I probably considerably more aware of wokeness now than I was then. But I said, well, I think that would be up to them. That would be up to them. And I don't think it would be my decision. I said something like that. Mm-hmm. And then there was a story in the Daily Mirror from that. I mean, literally, they hadn't gone digging. They just took that story and rewrote it as David Baddiel doesn't care if his girlfriends have abortions and said that one of my girlfriends had had an abortion and that, and I didn't give a fuck about it, essentially. It was their rewrite of that story. Wow. you know. And so I did sue them. And then what happened was about six months later with 
Piers Morgan and the Daily Mirror kicking back against it, I just couldn't be bothered. It just became so ugly and so many lawyers' letters and, you know, essentially threats that the Mirror would make my life hideous and not ever... Yeah. That after a while, I just thought... Oh. And also, I was worried that they would rake over the lives of of my ex-girlfriends, and which yeah. I didn't want to happen. That I just pulled pulled the case. I do remember very soon after pulling the case, Matthew Wright, you know the Matthew Wright who's on Channel yeah, yeah. Project, well, he used to write for the Mirror. And about a week after pulling the case in his column, he called me a comic genius. <laughs> <laughs> so it is as it is as basic as you kind of imagine it to be that. They will push you and push you and push you until you kind of have no choice but to let it drop. And therefore, in essence, they can write whatever the hell they want because they know they can. Yeah, they can. Ch- they can. I think for someone like get sued. for someone like me, I mean, you know, there are people richer and with better stamina than me for that kind of thing who probably would go through with suing the papers. But yeah, Hugh Grant, Hugh Grant, or whatever. Yeah, but I, I, I couldn't face it. And now I think it is different because now, you know. So much stuff can be said about anyone famous and is said about anyone famous. There's such a sort of Tower of Babel of misinformation that uh, I don't know whether I would worry that much because I would think, you know, at the time it feels like a really big deal to have, you know, the Daily Mirror saying that one of my girlfriends had had an abortion and I didn't give a fuck about it. Whereas now, you know, I mean, it's still not something I would want to be in the press, but it feels like, you know, there's probably 700 things being said on the internet that are worse if I want to go looking for them. Yeah. Um, so I always ask all my guests, so I'm going to ask you, uh, but I'll, I'll do a secondary question as well, because I think the answer is yes. Are you famous? Yeah, although I that show, Fame Not the Musical, which I did in 2013, it was sort of my return to stand-up, was kind of about being not as famous as I used to be. I, it wasn't really. It was about the mundane reality of being as famous as I am. So, for example, I began that show talking about how... Let me try and get this story right. It's a long time I've told it. Uh, about how I said, it's this show, a lot of people, when they talk about fame, it's going to be like either very high or very low, right? It's either going to be this glittering palace or it's going to be, you know, the Janis Joplin returning to your hotel room, lonely, killing yeah. yourself. You know, those are the two things, aren't they? It's mm-hmm. either a terrible, despairing thing where you end up hanging yourself or it's the greatest thing ever. But I said, actually, I want to talk about this type of fame. When I, uh, on Easy, no, on uh, Ryanair, you can buy uh, a, uh, what's it called? Uh, like a priority ticket, right? Uh, you'll know this because we've been on Ryanair flights together. <laughs> Many right? times. Many times. And you can buy a priority ticket that gets you on the airplane first. What you can do, and it's a bit sneaky, is you can buy your one priority ticket and maybe you're with four people, three other people in my family. They don't buy priority tickets because it costs 20 quid more to do that. But you you save their seats as while they're in the non-priority queue. And that way you get them all on, right, without having to pay it. I was I was doing that once on a flight to Greece, waiting for Morwen and my wife to bring the children on. And a bloke tried to sit next to me. And I, I, I said in what I thought was a kind of moral high ground way, sorry, I'm saving these seats for my children. And he looked at me and said, oh, right, so you basically bought one priority ticket and you're saving the seats for the family that you haven't bought priority tickets. That's very, what did he say? I think he said, that's very stingy, right? But he didn't. He didn't. He said, that's very stingy, but deal. (laughs) <laughs> right, and that was the type of fame I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about being slightly more visible than other people in a way that impacts on your life in very small, annoying, mundane, stupid ways. Yeah, and and no one had talked about that before, I don't think. And so I talked. So in terms of answering your question, I also talked about because the famous don't like to talk about being famous, right? That's what no. I talked about in the show. It's quite a grotty word. That's yeah, what that, uh, it is. Yeah. Exactly, it's a grotty word, and people. You know, even super famous people don't like to admit that they're famous. It's seen as somehow vulgar to do that. Mm. But at the same time, they really don't like to admit that they're not as famous as they used to be. And I did both those things in that show. I said, look, I am famous and I'm famous in this weird way that I get recognised all the time on the street or on aeroplanes. And it has this weird impact on my life that's kind of funny, but also a bit worrying sometimes. But also I'm not as famous as I used to be. Um 
and also because I, you know, I would say in two thousand. I mean, it's changed changes all the time because I, I would say I'm now a bit more famous than I was in two thousand and thirteen because I've done mm. more stuff and I've done those shows and they've been successful and you know. But you've also got a new demographic from your children's books. Yeah, oh yeah, I've done the children's books. I've done a couple of documentaries that have done really well. Um, so you know, it changes. Um, but the secondary question I was going to ask you, because I knew the answer was going to be yes, and a lot of the people I interview say no. Do they? And then I, yeah, a Who's, lot of them say no. Who says no? Well, well off the top of my head, Rhys James said no. And I said, well, arguably, Rhys, how many times have you been on Mock the Week? And he was like, I've been on it 13 times. Right. And I was like, well, I'd arguably say then, in terms of that being up there with the BBC's most important comedy shows and all of the other work you've done, certainly to a, a demographic, you are very famous. And, and quite a few people have said that. And I think that comes back to what we were saying about it being a grotty word. I think it's difficult to say I am famous. And Reese, to be fair, did go on to say, to talk about how if you're going to be a comedian at all, you have to be honest with yourself and say, yeah, I, I want to be famous because I know that to be successful to the level that I want to get to, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be famous. I mean, to be fair to Reese, I, I think Reese probably wasn't doing that out of the sort of, you know, delicate euphemism. No, 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 that's true. Uh, yeah. I, I think he probably isn't sure. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he's someone who is well known probably to a sp- very specific demographic. But in terms of, I don't think he would be recognised on a Ryanair flight. Uh, probably, right? <laughs> that's the that's how we work it out. Yeah. I, well, it sort of is. It's sort of like the more mundane the situation, the more you are sort of famous. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i not that famous and never yeah. have been compared to, uh, obviously, the super famous. I don't mean like globally famous people, but Frank Skinner, I remember saying to me once that when he, that Terry Wogan had said to him, there are only five people in Britain who are really famous, that everyone knows, and I'm one of them. Terry said, I'm one of them, which was correct at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think there, that is true in a way. I mean, again, it might have been changed a bit by the internet now, but there was a point in time where, you know, when everyone just watched BBC One and ITV, where there was sort of Terry and Bruce Forsyth and, you know, two or three other people. You kind of know that your parents and you knew who they were. But beyond that, I'm not sure that lots of people would have known uh, that many people. But I... You know, I think Reese is right to say that, but you might have had people on, I don't know who you've had on, who, I mean, I heard Clive Mm. uh, Anderson, and I think Clive demurred a little bit, sort of on the the basis that he was, again, more famous. I mean, he was, you know, but now he's on the radio more than he's on TV, and therefore his face isn't recognised as much. You know, it's, it's kind of a nuanced thing. It is, and you've been and and you've spoken about having gone through that kind of peaks and troughs of fame. So, how does it feel when you're not as famous as you once were? But uh, and more specifically, do you then strive to become more famous again? Do you see other your peers, for instance, if they're getting kind of more semblance of success and fame? Do you think I want? I'm jealous of that. I want some more of that. Um. Yeah, and no. I mean, you know, I mean, I. I am very honest about all this stuff, about everything. So I don't want to be dishonest and try and imply that I'm, you know, above all that, which I'm totally not. But I have been famous, in, you know, in at various different levels for a very long time. Now, I mean, I became famous in 1990, I would say, when Mary White's Experience started on telly. And I think within the level of fame that I'm liable to achieve, uh, I don't know that I'm that bothered anymore with like trying to be you know more famous than I might be now you know a bit more famous a bit you know what I mean it doesn't feel to be like that worth it in terms of struggling to be a bit more famous and I would say even if this is quite a wholesome and nutritious thing to say that I am probably more interested in just being able to do the work I want to do than I am in fame now that's not completely different because it's a byproduct of the work I want to do because I don't want to go and fucking you know save lives in Ethiopia even though that's well I have done that for comic relief a tiny bit but you know what I mean <laughs> I haven't I haven't I've probably never saved a fucking life well, I've done, played football out there yeah, I played football out there and I gave some malaria nets out while buggering around with Hugh Dennis but I mean what I mean is like, like I I I there's work I want to do, right? But the work I want to do is on telly or it is on stage or it is in film or whatever. So it will involve being, uh, you know, the byproduct of that is fame. 
Yeah. But I would. Here's the weird thing, right? I mean, and you know this, which is to do the work you want to do, you have to have hits, right? And that means you will be more famous. So, for example, I am being, or I was before the pandemic, being talked to by lots of people at the moment about documentaries because I did one about my dad and dementia and then one about Holocaust denial, which made an impact. Um, And... So I really am interested in doing more of those. Uh, But there's also another thing, which is that when they were on, especially the Holocaust denial one, you know, I was trending on Twitter and Holocaust denial was trending on Twitter and stuff. That hasn't happened very often. And so you have to deal with all that. And that is a byproduct, as I say. It's not really like what the work is about. And it's not really about like, okay, so now I want to do this documentary. But at the same time, the fact that it trended on Twitter does help me when I go into a meeting, you know, with whatever commissioner and they say they see that and they say, OK, well, David Baddiel's a bit of a voice in documentaries, therefore. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, and I think in reality, uh, these days, I think commissioners basically take a lot of their leads from who's been trending on Twitter, who's got how many followers. That's kind of the new the new way of working out whether something's going to be a hit or not. Yeah, but that's... Yeah, they do. And and that's obviously a a very double-edged sword, not least because, you know, Twitter's a hair-trigger place. And certainly for comedy, maybe slightly less so for documentaries, but certainly for comedy, you know, a a comedy can be erased out of existence just because people on Twitter Mm -hmm. decide they don't like something about it in the first programme. Um I, can't, I think or I think one of Ben Elton's. I can't remember which one it was. Mm. Can you remember? I can't. There was. Uh, I can't remember which one it was. But um... quite early doors. I mean, before Twitter was what it is now, when it's got immense power now. But even back then, it was like about five or six years ago. For, I didn't watch it. I didn't know. I don't. I, and I like Ben Elton, so I, it may have been totally great. But it got like it was one of the first examples, I think, of rather than waiting like we used to do for the press or whatever to do reviews and looking for ratings and all the stuff that used to be, you've got to get do you know good ratings and good reviews for a new series to be commissioned. It was like instant. It was like, oh no, Twitter hates it. So this is a disaster. Yeah. Um, and you've experienced, I mean, obviously you've experienced so many highs and positives and hits in your in your words but you've also experienced the other way we for example we wrote a sitcom together that didn't get commissioned yeah you've done presumably done lots of stuff i know badil syndrome you got a lot of uh, your sitcom you got a lot of episodes but it was if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Recommissioned. Yeah. How, uh, you know, how does that feel as a very successful person with fame to uh, recover from those kind of knockbacks? Is it something that you find easy? Uh, well, okay. So, so again, there's something slightly different about me to most people, I think, in that situation. So when I've had not successful things, which I certainly have, including the two things you've mentioned, and there are others, uh, like, for example, I stopped writing adult novels uh, because like my last adult novel, which is called The Death of Eli Gold, which took me a long time to write, and it's a very complicated literary novel, got a few good reviews and then an absolute fucking hatchet job in The Guardian, at which point I kind of knew, okay, well, this novel's not going to get listed for any prizes. It's not going to get the things that you need to get a literary novel read by people or admired by people. And I kind of stopped writing literary novels as after that and started writing children's novels, which have been really successful. But here's the thing about that. At no point, and this is unusual, I think, did I think, oh, the death of Eli Gold is shit. I never thought that. Right. I never thought Badil Syndrome was shit. I never thought sit.com, the thing that we did, was shit. Uh, what I think is, uh, okay, that's been misjudged. I mean, not that there aren't things wrong with them. There are certainly things wrong with Badil Syndrome and there were things wrong with sit.com. Actually, I don't there is much wrong with The Death of Eli Gold. I think it's good. But, I mean, I think there were also really good things about sit.com and really good things about Padil Syndrome that just got lost in the, in the negativity around it or the failure of it. And I don't. I know lots of people do, including, I think, Morwenna, my wife. She does take things very deeply to heart and starts being very negative about herself if something that she does fails in that respect i'm doing inverted commas but i don't i just think all oh, right that's the world getting it wrong uh and it's very frustrating that i don't feel that's not a really a way through you know it, it's incredibly frustrating and unbelievably annoying and i and i get fucked off and it has the same effect because i still like might wake up in the middle of the night you know thinking oh you know sit you know sit.com should have been made or whatever but i don't think I'm shit. Uh, yeah. And I think some I think, people do. I don't know. I think that's the luckiest trait you've got. Like, uh, I, we mentioned a little bit of this in the, the first episode we did. But um, that self-belief, I think, is the, the luckiest thing. Because I think, you know, that enables you to just next day keep going with your other projects and not spend, you know, some people spend years then not getting out of bed. Yes, that's true. I mean, I have... Yeah. I mean, I've been depressed about things uh but not that um i i mean the children's thing is a weird thing from that point of view actually because i wrote four adult novels right and the first two actually did really sold really well and then i went very literary with my third one it didn't sell particularly well and literary again with my fourth one or whatever uh and literary novels you know they don't sell particularly well so you sort of have to get them on the booker long list at least for them to be read and I kind of knew that was never going to happen, particularly after this Guardian review. But that sort of brought it home to me that, like, oh, look, at the end of the day, people think you're that bloke on that football thing, as I was described recently in a letter I found by Beryl Bainbridge. <laughs> right. you're, yeah, you're on that football thing. So it's hard for people, for critics or whatever, to really eulogise about my literary novel, right? So I sort of know that because you're pigeon, you're pigeonholed. I mean, we we all definitely get pigeonholed, but you and you in a far more public way. Yeah, but I mean, it's interesting that I even say because I I just totally I have no doubt about that. That's in terms of what you said about my self belief. I know that the Death of Eli Gold is a really good novel, and I also know oh, it's not appreciated. I can see that it's not appreciated because I'm the comedian from that TV thing. So it doesn't make me doubt myself, but it sort of makes me doubt my judgment for spending all that time fucking writing a literary novel when I basically know it's not going to be appreciated, however good right. it is, right? Uh, is that you being competitive then? Is that is that almost you trying to prove to yourself that you you can your doubt that you can 
prove yourself wrong on that front? No, I don't know. What I, no, I think it's slightly mad and, and over-optimistic. Uh, yeah. and, and as I say, although I might beat myself up about my judgment, but not my talent, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, but then, as it happens, you know, Ezra said something which led me to write The Parent Agency, which is my first children's novel, and that's now sold nearly a million copies. And that might not have happened without the failure of, you know, the death of Eli Gold. Uh, now, it's a weird thing because... I'm very proud of the kids' books, but I do know another part of me it thinks, oh, right, I think I could write adult novels, though, uh, and I, uh, I'm i not doing that now because I'm writing these very successful children's novels. So that's a kind of weird space to be in. In terms of what we're talking about, which is, are you made happy by the appreciation of the public, which is sort of what fame is, by success, or by your own artistic endeavours? Yeah. You know? And because you've written, because you like you just said, you've written t- two novels that did sell well. Yeah, yeah, I wrote Time for Bed, which is my first novel, which I wrote in the nineties, and then Whatever Love Means. Yeah, they both sold over a hundred thousand copies, which is a lot for you know those kind of novels. Although they were they they were they were literary, but they were also comedy, had loads of jokes in them, whatever. Yeah. Um, but I mean, for a lot of people, David, that would that would make them think well, I've got the template here for what really works. I'll continue. But you instead need to push yourself to go into a direction, you know, like the rate, you know, more Radiohead than, you know, Travis. Well, yeah, well, my third novel, which is called The Secret Purposes, is a is set during the Second World War. And it's about the internment camps on the Isle of Man that my grandfather was in. It's about Jewish German refugees on the Isle of Man in the Second World War. It's a real fuck off proper literary novel. Uh, mm. And I don't know, I mean... I mean that's just a sort of different issue, not to not really. To do, well, maybe it's a bit to do with fame, which is I'm always going to be someone who is a bit split between being, you know, a, an entertainer, a clown, and an intellectual. I mean, yeah. you know, and I sort of think I've married that better, in a way, than I did when I was younger. I think I, I mean, I don't mean in terms of success here because I was more successful in the Mary White's experience and in fantasy football than I am now. But I think that did involve suppressing a bit of the, the sort of intellectual side of me a bit. Uh, yeah. And now I think I, I'm i sort of managed to hold those two things, you know, in one place, I think. I mean, like, for example, with the Holocaust in our documentary or the Dementia documentary, if you watch those, they're both really difficult subjects and they have really funny things in them, right? And, I, and, yeah. and that's what I'm very keen on. I'm keen on being able to say, look, just because... Uh, I'm a comedian. It doesn't mean I can't take on really difficult subjects, but that also doesn't mean I'm just going to be serious about them. No. And it's good. I think it's really good to tell people from your point of view and show people that there are comedic elements of those very, very serious things. Because when people go through those things, they find it difficult to probably difficult to deal with those and understand what that's like i think i think basically broadcasters in general have a job to help people through those moments it would be remiss of me uh and we haven't got too much time left would be remiss of me to not ask you um about three lines no 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 just changing the subject but in terms of when you realized you wanted to be famous uh i don't think there was a moment of that for me I think, uh, and that, uh, you know, as as someone who thinks of you know himself as highly self-aware and knowing himself very well, there, there's a kind of blind spot here, which is now I look back on when I first started doing stand-up, uh, which was in the Cambridge Footlights actually, uh, but then I did five years on the cabaret circuit as well, and you know that involved ho- you know comparing the comedy store and doing like five gigs a night and all sorts of in some very grim venues. I look back on that and I think what how did i do that without thinking what if this doesn't work out what if this doesn't get anywhere and i'm just doing this in in 30 years time i'm doing shit gigs above pubs you know yeah, or, as, or, men, as many comics are yeah as many comics are or that or i get or i do it for 15 years it's a waste of time and then i give it up and work in an office what what and i never thought that 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 is a weird thing i i did just think no it'll be all right I mean, I was doing well, I have to say, you know, I within a year I was comparing having come out of Cambridge and, and actually having been like lots of people find it, I found it very difficult to get gigs when I first came out of Cambridge because I told people that I'd been the vice president of the Cambridge Footlights and contrary to what everyone will tell you about, you know, oh, people came out of the Footlights and got to TV in the mid 80s, 
it was the worst place to come from. And people just used to put the phone down on me. And I used to have to, and I ended up just getting open spots without mentioning it. And then yeah. within a year and a half, I was comparing the comedy store. And so by then I was earning quite good money, you know, and so it felt, oh, I'm on a trajectory. You know what I mean? And yeah. at that point, so to answer your question, I don't know when I... So you never strived for it? You, you were just striving for being good at your job? Well, that would that would sound that sounds too poncy. I, I, I no. What I'm trying to say is, I seem to have then a fair confidence in my destiny, for want of a better word, that I was going to be famous. But I can't answer the question: When did I realise that I wanted to be famous? I think I, when I was younger, I wanted to be a comedian. I listened to Derek and Clive when I was 13. I thought it was the funniest thing ever. Never had known laughter like that. My brother played it to me. I didn't have any idea how to become a comedian, but I knew about Monty Python and all that. That's why I went to Cambridge. And uh, I just, yeah, I just sort of kept going, doing Cambridge Footlights and then stand up in, at the, on the circuit or whatever. And it did, you know, involve the steps that led to me being famous. In 1990, well, in 1980, Mary White Spence was on the radio, was on Radio 1. And then by 1990, it had a TV pilot. So my answer to your question is, back then, it just felt like I was I was on a trajectory that led to it, and I didn't question it. Um, yeah. And, and then, uh, when then did you first feel like you were famous? What was it? What was the moment where you thought, oh, I'm famous, and how did that make you feel? I, I could tell you, it was sort of a rather it's mechanical thing. Uh, and not very kind of elevated. But it was to do with being, in a way it was to do with having been on the cabaret circuit for a long time. Um, because, as you'll know, because you've done the circuit, it's quite a thing to get up on stage when people have no idea who you are and make them laugh, right? I, yeah. I think an audience, especially a British audience, not so much an American one, but I think a British audience, their attitude is, fuck off, make me laugh, isn't it? And you have to, yes, win, totally. you have to win them over. Yeah. And in America, I think, because I've done some gigs there in America, it's like they're impressed that you're up there and you have to ruin it to not make them laugh. Yes. But in Britain, it's fuck off, make me laugh. Who are you, essentially? I So we'd done one series of The Mary White's Experience and me and Rob Newman had a live gig at a place called The Venue in New Cross. Oh, my God. I used to go to The Venue on nights out. Yeah, it was a club, <laughs> I know. But it was, yeah. it was like 900 people, I think, were uh, in it when it was being used for an audience thing. And... I I didn't even know that we would fill it, but also I was quite worried about how it would go or whatever because it was the first gig I'd done for a while. And we got there, there were people queuing around the block for it. People absolutely, young people queuing around the block for it. And we came on stage and people went fucking mental and they laughed at everything I said. And I thought, oh, right, this job is much, much easier when you're famous, right? Yeah. Because no longer... Is it that you're a stranger coming on and people are thinking, who's this? Oh, I don't like the look of him. Fuck off, right? It's people who want to see you, who feel you're already a friend of theirs, someone they like. And so they're so much more ready to laugh. And that's what I felt about it. Yeah. It was something very mechanical and sort of utilitarian as a comedian. Oh, right. It's much easier getting laughs when people already like you, i.e. Yeah. you're famous. And... Did your ego get boosted immediately and did you become a different person? No, no. I mean, as you'll know, I mean, I've said this many times. Uh, I am absurdly solidly myself. And, you know, if I could compare myself to uh, someone who's much more successful than me, Larry David, Jerry Seinfeld says of Larry David that he is exactly the same person that he was when he first met him like 30 years ago doing tiny gigs and I think most people would say that of me I, I don't think I change at all I find it very difficult to change it's partly why I'm a limited performer is that I can't do funny voices I can't do faces that impression impressions or whatever I can only sound like me I can only really refer to my own experience I don't really like having to do bits on stage where I'm having to really do other people's voices in the bit yeah and that yeah I know that feeling and that's because I am only comfortable being me and so that's good if, uh, psychologically if you're famous because it allows you to deal with the fact that there is suddenly 
all this shit going on and there's other versions of you that you're supposed to play up to or whatever. And I have seen many, many people around me change as a result of fame. But I think I would be, I think anyone who knows me would say, oh no, you, you haven't changed much. You're basically yeah. the same person. I always ask people how fame affected their personal relationships, but having spoken to you a few times about this stuff, and I'm not brave enough to ask most of the guests I interview because I don't know them, I'm particularly keen to ask you how it affected you in terms of um, what your uh, relationships with women were like before you were famous compared to afterwards. Well, I've talked about this as well. I mean, that's the other thing. It's, as you know, It's the same thing, really. People being much, much happier, much keener to laugh when you step on stage because they like you is the same thing is that women are much, much more interested in you sexually think you're more attractive. You become more attractive uh, when you're famous, certainly when you're funny. Um, And, you know, I, to be honest with you, by the way, I don't know if this works the other way around. I've always thought, uh, you know, no one seemed to find apart from weirdos, Margaret Thatcher, more attractive because she was super famous or the yeah. the queen. Uh, I mean, these might be bad examples, but I'm talking about women who are not known, you know, who are not famous because they're models or whatever. So similar to me, you know, I was not known and I was with someone who was incredibly beautiful, as I believe I said at the time. I don't mean the wo- a woman. I mean, Rob Newman was really beautiful uh, and loads of women wanted to sleep with him, but still loads of women want to sleep with me. Uh, and I mean, Frank has once said at some point that he was, uh, you know, uh, chugging away at the bottom of the championship, essentially, in, in sexual yeah. terms, when he was <laughs> not famous. And then suddenly he was in the top three of the premiership. Uh, and that's true. It is like that. The weird thing about me, not weird, the truth, the fact is about me, is that I'd been in a very long-term relationship when I got famous. I then did split up. Wasn't really anything to do with fame. She left me. She was having an affair and she left me. Uh, and after a few days, I, I, I thought, oh, hang on, this is brilliant. <laughs> uh, I could take advantage, essentially, of the fact that I'm famous. But I never really did, and still regret that, really. Uh, I never really did. I mean, I did sleep with a few women when I was in Newman of Deal, but because I'd been very deeply trained, I think, to be monogamous when I was young, because I'd been in a relationship for 11 years, mm. I couldn't do the promiscuity that, really exploits fame if you see what I mean so so other men I knew other comedians I knew and other comedians I still know are unbelievably good at the key thing with with exploiting the opportunity of being famous and therefore being able to be promiscuous which is being able to say goodbye that's the thing that's the thing you have to be good at as I think Charlie Sheen said of prostitutes men do not pay them to have sex with men pay them to go afterwards and I found that very difficult in terms of fame thing, like that one night stand thing. Yeah. The sex was fine. What was really difficult was saying goodbye. I'm never going to see you again in the morning because I felt yeah. such a cunt doing that. So within about four months, I was back in a relationship right. with my second right. major girlfriend, Sarah Bowden, uh, who yeah. I was with throughout the period I was in Newman and Badil and the early period of, of Badil and Skinner. Yeah. So yeah, I've interviewed a few people who uh, have had uh, yeah a, a few male celebrities who have said, uh, well, Ralph Little, for instance, he I asked him the same question. He just said, no, I fucking loved it. Oh, like yeah. I was not I was not getting any action off anyone. I was the weird gawky one, and then suddenly you know they're looking at me in clubs, and I'm like, yeah, you know that's that's great. I, I know it. it it is brilliant. Trust me. I mean, I remember going with Rob Newman to clubs in venues. You know, we'd be playing out of town, and we'd go to a club and it sounds absurd in a way and probably shit now in a me too universe, but Hey, women would start flocking to us. We, we would have problems as well because the men in there would often get a bit pissed off because they sometimes have arrived with these women. Yeah. But I, I just never really took advantage of that. I, I do sometimes think, and I did do a bit about this, which I then dropped in my, in my uh, last show that, 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 my, that me too has provided my great revenge there. In, yeah. in that, a lot of men I know from that time spend all their time terrified that some of the women, one of the women that they slept with at, at that time will, you know, be pissed off and un- f- decide that the experience that they had was a terrible one. The fact is I, I just didn't do it very much means that I don't have to worry that someone's going to call me up, at, you know, 
midnight of an yeah. evening and say, you wanked into a pot plant in front of me because I, I never really <laughs> had the opportunity. Um, so I wanted to ask a question about when you're famous, whether it feels more natural or like you want to just hang out with other famous people more. Is there like a, a secret nod or wink or a, a want to actually hang out with people who uh, are as famous as you are or more famous and really not so much less famous people? Uh, well, this is a complicated one, isn't it? I mean, I I do have a lot of famous mates uh, and occasionally I, I have old mates who have accused me of who I'm still totally friendly with, but nonetheless they've accused me of like being someone who likes to hang out with other famous people. But I, I don't think that's true. I, 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 I'll tell you why. It's because there's loads of famous people that I know that I choose not to hang out with. All right. Yeah. Um, that I think, oh, I don't really like them, or you know, they're not much fun, or they're just not very unzerous, to use a Yiddish word meaning they're not very compatible <laughs> with my sense of humour. And, Our Yiddish audience will be pleased. Yeah, and I, uh, you know, I could, there's like, I really could tell you, I mean, there's a lot. I've been famous a long time. I've been to a lot of parties and there's loads of famous people that I've thought, yeah, you know what? I don't think I'm going to get on with that person. And then there are about 20 famous people who I've met along the way who are just have become friends in the way that people that you work with, you know, and that you meet in the same industry become friends. Yeah. So I am really close to some very famous people, Jonathan Ross, Russell Brand, you know, other people, obviously Frank Skinner. Uh, and these are because these men are men who it turns out I really get on with and they happen to also be really famous. Uh, but I I really don't think it's the case that I am interested in them as friends because they are famous. Okay, and do you think you have you see people who are different to that, who are famous people who do only hang out with famous people? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, there's lots of famous people who only want to hang out with famous people, and there are lots of famous people who uh, seem to, you know, just amass around them other famous people. I don't really want to say who those people are, though. No, no, I'm not going to ask <laughs> you who they are. Don't worry. So we have, uh, we've only got a few minutes left. We have a little quick fire bit at the end. Actually, just let me ask. say one thing in those terms. Just one more thing. <laughs> who are you going to name? No, oh. no, I'm not going to name. I'm going to name someone in a nice way. So. I've got to the age now where I don't really make that many new mates, to be honest. I sort of like, it's quite hard to make a new mate when you're past about 40, I think. But I do this podcast, my Bowie podcast that I do, which is not really about Bowie, with Tim Hinks, right, who runs Expectation. Now, he's in the same industry because he runs a production company, which and he used to run Endemol, which is a big production company. But he's not famous. He's just a bloke who I met, as it were, at work. And we really got on and we really have a delight, David Bowie. And now he's a really close mate of mine and we do a podcast together. And he's actually become a tiny bit famous as a result. In fact, one of my favourite things when I was touring recently is I, I read out tweets at half time uh, in the second half. And I quite often get a tweet saying, when's Frank Skinner coming on? Sometimes when's Rob Newman coming on? But one time I got, when's Tim Hinks coming on? Which I was very pleased. <laughs> but I mean, that's what I mean. He's just someone I've met at work. And I've become really friendly with him. And in a way, that's no different from Frank Skinner or Jonathan Ross. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so I'm going to do these quick fire ones. First things that come into your head, okay? What's the most embarrassing thing that's happened to you because of fame? Oh, like there's a thousand, thousand things like that. Uh, I mean, it's not a quick fire. There's no quick fire answers to that. Uh, so okay, the most I'm going to tell you, okay, the one that comes to mind is with Peter Gabriel again, I wouldn't be in this situation. I wouldn't be on a, I was on a ski run, uh, a ski lift with Peter Gabriel, who I wouldn't have been anywhere near if I wasn't famous. I was on a holiday, skiing holiday with Peter Gabriel. Massive fan I was of his and am of his. Uh, he uh, asked me a question about Harry Enfield, right? He asked me a question about whether I knew Harry Enfield or what Harry Enfield was up to. And I said, this was a while back, I said, oh, he's doing this, he's doing that. Oh, he did a show called Celeb, right? And then I said, oh, which was about a faded rock star, in fact. <laughs> and I saw his face, Peter's face, fall. And then I just started talking to put as much time between the words in fact and the rest of my life as I possibly could. Because I didn't really mean like you. I just meant that might you might find that funny, but it sounded like I meant like you. <laughs> very good what's the best thing about being famous uh the best thing about being famous i guess is that you do get to meet a lot of interesting people if you work in an interesting area like comedy uh and generally they do want to talk to you and they do want to meet you it's shortcuts 
you know, that thing of, yeah. of having to like prove that you yourself are an interesting person because people, if you've done, you know, work that people have seen that they like that. Uh, and I suppose in the world that we live in now, you can convince yourself that your life has meaning. I mean, I don't really believe this, but I think you can because it's out there. See what I'm saying? The stuff you've said yeah. is out there. And I do sometimes think that, like with the internet, I've noticed that people have to put stuff out there and be seen by the public, by other people in the public, to, to feel that they have meaning in what they do. But if you're already famous, you feel you're doing that anyway. Yep. And the worst thing? <laughs> uh, the worst thing is that is the thousands and thousands of people who think you're a cunt. Uh, yeah. Whoever well, you trolling. are. Whoever you are, I mean, there may be more in my case, but, you know, there there will just be many people who will just dismiss you or hate you on basis of very little, <laughs> the basis they don't like your face, they don't like your voice, they don't like a joke you once, you, you know, that you told in 1997 and that's it for them. Do you know what I mean? There, yeah. there are people make very quick decisions about you when you're famous and they they never go back on them. Uh, someone's saying, can I just say one more thing uh, about that, which I think in... Um, uh, the Death of Eli Gold. At one point, someone says that fame is like starlight, by which they don't mean that it's glittering and twinkly. What they mean is it comes from long ago, meaning that the first thing that you're seen as is really the thing that you're always seen as. It's really hard to change the perception of who you are when you're famous. Um, And I think if you're a complicated person with a 360-degree personality, that can feel very frustrating. Yeah. Totally understand. Who's the most famous person in your phone, David? In my phone? Uh, I suppose the most famous person I've ever met. Yeah, no, in your phone. So off the top of your head, think about it. Oh, the most famous person in my phone. Fuck. Uh... I I... I don't know. You've really nailed this quickfire round. Sorry, though. I'm sorry. You know, that's <laughs> the truth thing, because I could just lie and say Madonna's in my phone, but she isn't. Uh, Hugh Grant? Yeah, that'll do. Is it him? Is, Ru- you. is Russell Brand more famous than Hugh Grant? No, oh, okay. Hugh, Grant, oh, Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant is more Hugh Grant famous. is in my Although- phone. Yeah, I think Hugh Grant is more famous for a longer period of time anyway. And final question, knowing all that entails and with the benefit of hindsight, would you give fame up if you had the chance? By which I mean you'd still have all your financial security, your family, everything. You'd just never be spotted in the street and would never have been famous. No, no. Oh, no. One thing, one more thing. I can't do quick fire rounds, right? It's clear, okay? So (laughs) another thing you get asked on these Q&As when you're famous is do you have any regrets, right? And famous people almost always say, no, no, I have no regrets. I'll do it all the same way again if I had the chance. They always say that, right? Because we live in a kind of no regrets culture. It's like when people are kicked off talent, uh, off reality shows, they have to pretend that's what they wanted, right? And I remember yes. I always answer that question by saying, any thinking person is constantly assailed by regret, right? Which I think they are. There's a thousand things I might have done differently if I had the chance. But... I have enjoyed the ride of being famous and would not want that not to have happened. I'd have changed some stops along the way, but the ride itself, I wouldn't change. It's an excellent answer. Uh, Just before I do my outro, I should say we are wrapping this up so that we can clap for the NHS workers, all of the great workers during COVID. Um, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Is there anything you'd like to plug in about 20 seconds that you're doing that you want them to know? (laughs) No, nothing I'm doing is available because of the fucking disease. (laughs) Oh, no. I've probably got a children's book, the the Taylor Turbo Chaser, coming out in paperback at some point. Okay, brilliant. Guys, make sure you uh, keep an eye out for that. Thanks so much for listening. Press that subscribe button on Almost Famous. Rate the podcast and leave us a comment too. Find us on Instagram at, at Almost Famous the Podcast and on Twitter at Pod Almost Famous. And make sure you clap for your NHS workers. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Goodbye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.